listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Let's go. 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we find ourselves today. We're going to look at verse 8 through the end of the chapter now. This text is a bit of a doozy. There are some uh, tricky verses in here that uh, are going to take some explaining for us, some, some, some deep thinking. And I, I pray that as we think deeply about these verses, that it will just, we will mine God's truth for His glory and our good, and that we will even anchor our souls deeper in Jesus and be more satisfied with Him. I think that the theme of this particular text that we're looking at today, as is one of the major themes of all of 1 Peter, is that Peter is trying to encourage the Christians that he is writing to who are living in, scattered throughout modern-day Turkey, throughout these provinces, who are undergoing persecution and suffering at the hands of an increasingly hostile Roman Empire. Not to the point yet where we see later, a decade or two later in the first century, where the Emperor Nero is killing Christians, martyring them, and burning their bodies in the streets of Rome. It's a little bit before that time, but nevertheless, there's intense persecution, intense suffering, uh, social persecution. And so Peter is writing to encourage these Christians that their suffering is not pointless and that when they endure this suffering, they are in a unique position to display the surpassing worth of Jesus to an onlooking world. And that is a message that clearly Christians need in our day because we live in a broken world where even though we've been redeemed and all these beautiful truths that we learned in the first chapter that our inheritance is heavenly and eternal and imperishable and undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us, that even then, as glorious as that future will be, there is a present reality that at times can discourage us. And Peter is wanting to infuse his readers in the first century and now in the 21st century with a sort of gospel-fueled confidence and purpose in their lives as they endure a broken world. So I'm going to read 1 Peter 3. And as I read these verses, my plan is uh, to read and then to pray. I'm going to pray first, and then, then we'll read. But friends, and if you're a visitor here today, know that our desire is every Sunday to worship the Lord, to open up His Word, to think deeply about His Word. We just work through books of the Bible and to think about His truth, what it says to us about God and to worship Him and then to take that truth and apply it to our lives so that we might become more like Jesus so that He would be more beautiful to us and so that we would be a more effective witness of His grace to the world around us. It's really just that simple. I don't have any packaged thing. You know, I don't have any cute little phrases or... This is the Word of God that God has handed down to His people through the ages that for centuries Christians have been getting together, gathering to think about 
Oftentimes one of them in the context of the local church will stand up and preach and teach out of God's word. And we are here to do that today, just to stare into God's word. What we are about to read is God's holy word. And it has power. It's, it's not God. We don't worship the Bible. But the Bible shows us God. It's, it's his word to us. It's true and it's It's got power to make alive and to transform and to to quicken our hearts and to transform us. And so let's read these words with the appropriate amount of gravity and humility and and earnestness. Let's lean forward as as I read these words. Let me pray first. Father, we need your help. How glorious you are. How beautiful you are. The surpassing worth of life in you is indescribable. Would you show us a portion of that this morning as we read these words from one of your apostles thousands of years ago to encourage Christians that are enduring suffering in a broken world? Would you do the same for us that you did for those first century readers? Would we see Jesus? Would we be satisfied in him? Would you, for the people in this room that are not yet believing in Jesus, would you give them faith so that they can turn away, as this young man quoted for us this morning, so that they can turn away from evil and pursue peace and trust in Christ? And God, would you you meet us here this morning, in this room, in your word, by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we can, I heard a preacher say long ago that we can arrange the wood, but only you can bring the fire. So would you bring fire this morning in our hearts for Christ? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read, starting in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, 
having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him. <laughs> All right, well, as you can tell, there's some interesting things in this text. A couple questions come to my mind as I read it. Is Peter advocating the health and wealth prosperity gospel? I mean, he says, you will be blessed if you do these things. Is he sort of guaranteeing an earthly blessing here? Also, what is he talking about when it says that Jesus went to the spirits in prison and proclaimed to them? And then what does he mean by when he says that baptism now saves you? So, all right, let's shake it off a little bit now. You're going to have to work with me on this. These are some interesting questions that this is why we preach through books of the Bible, because we're going to answer these things. And so let's Let's work back through it. First couple things I want you to see in the first few verses is that Peter is, again, advocating what life should look like within the context of community in the local church. Just look at verse 8 there. He says that we should have this unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. It doesn't mean that we're always going to agree on everything together, but there's this general unity of mind where we agree that the most important thing in life is the gospel and making Jesus known, caring for one another, to commend the gospel. And there's this, there's this certain sort of grace-filled, gospel-infused disposition that Christians should have towards one another. I think especially in the context of the local church, this should be the safest place on earth. This should be a place where gossip and rumor and jealousy and envy go to die. This is a place that should be, we should struggle to be free of those things so that we create this sort of counterculture that commends the gospel that we preach and believe. And so verse eight is, is kind of an inward admonition to be this type of church that lives in this way together. And then there's this outward posture towards a, a hostile surrounding culture that he mentions in verse nine. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So there's this inward sense in verse eight that we live together in this humble gentle way and then towards an outward culture we're not these people that sort of bunker ourselves off from culture and just sort of lob grenades of criticism at the culture 
but we are these people that have this sort of gospel-infused humility, but yet gentle strength to an onlooking culture to where we're not just sort of fighting evil with evil, but we are speaking words of life and truth to a culture that is often criticizing us. I can't think of anything more applicable for Christians today in the current political and social climate where the, the standards of just historic morality and righteousness, even if it's unconnected to Christianity, are just being attacked in our culture. And the temptation oftentimes is to, to really boil it down into just kind of a, uh, an attack of, of mean sayings about other sides or other political agendas or whatever it is. But Peter here is admonishing Christians to have this, this fierce but grace-infused strength to when the culture is reviling the message of the gospel, to bless and when we do this, we obtain a blessing. So what is Peter saying there? I don't think that the blessing that Peter is talking about is just merely eternal life, although certainly that's part of it. I think that what he has in view here is that this type of life that is blessed not with material gain or comfort, but with a disposition that makes the gospel and Jesus seem lovely to an onlooking world and gives us a sort of solid nature. It gives us a gravitas to our soul that is more satisfying than always trying to you know, win an argument with everybody that disagrees with us. And what he does is he quotes from Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16, and that's what verses 10, 11, and 12 are, that when we, whoever desires to love life, not to have this necessarily materially prosperous life, to, but to be a person whose soul is anchored and satisfied with walking with Jesus rather than gaining in this world. When we desire that, to see good days, these things will be true of us. We will keep our tongue from evil and we'll keep our lips from speaking deceit. And then verse 11, which I think is a wonderful description of the Christian life, which, are, which this young man quoted for us, that a Christian turns away from evil and does good. Friends, that is a description of what happens to our soul when we trust in Jesus. It doesn't mean that we're sinless, but it means that the, the loudest thing about us, about us is that we're repenting. We're turning away from sin, and we're trusting in Jesus, right? So if, let's think of it this way. This is helpful for me, is that if we're here in Columbus, and I said that we're going to Atlanta, and we got in a car, and we were driving to Atlanta, I wouldn't have to say that simultaneously we were also leaving Columbus because to go to Atlanta means necessarily that we're leaving Columbus. Likewise, when we go to Christ, we are leaving a former way of life. We are turning. We are repenting. Now, in No Shave November, we can't get through this month without quoting from William Arnaud, that British theologian with that long, awesome beard back in the 1800s, who gave one of the most beautiful quotes. I say it often, just paraphrasing it now. But he said that the difference between a Christian and a, no, and a person who's not a Christian is not that one has sin and the other does not, but that the Christian is taking God's side against their dreaded sin Whereas the non-Christian is taking sin side against a dreaded God. 
So, so do you see that there? And that's the question we all have to ask ourselves. That's what Martin Luther nailed to the chapel door in Wittenberg. Thesis number one of his 95, 95 points against the doctrine of the Catholic Church was that repentance isn't just the beginning of the Christian life. It is the whole of the Christian life. And so what Arnaud is telling us, what Martin Luther is telling us, and most importantly what Peter is telling us here in the scripture is that what a Christian does in the context of a hostile world is not dabble with, not compromise with, but with the help of brothers and sisters around them, turn away from evil and do good. Friends, how do we do that alone? I mean, come on, by myself, I am a weak cat. But with other people to keep me accountable and love me and serve me and... And, and speak truth to me, we can, I can, turn away from evil and do good. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And then here's, here's I think, the heart of, of Peter's point in this passage. He's not saying that if we live in this way, that we will have this, this sort of charmed life that doesn't encounter trouble. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he's saying the opposite. He's saying in verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So we may assume there, if that's all that Peter said, is that, well, if you live in this way, if you abide by these things that he's saying, these principles, then you will just sort of live this charmed life. But no, he says, but, in verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So Peter is saying that living like Jesus, living for Christ in a hostile world will bring suffering for righteousness' sake. And when you do this, you will be blessed. God will come alongside you. He will anchor your soul. And in a strange sort of paradox, God in his kind providence will use your suffering and your trial to wean your heart from this earth and woo you to heaven so that Jesus becomes more satisfying than temporary comfort. And then he says, let's not waste this opportunity to, to proclaim Jesus to an onlooking world. But in verse 15, he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so Peter is saying, no, we, we don't just endure suffering in a hostile world and just sort of get through it without losing, you know, our, our faith. But he's saying it's a unique opportunity to display Jesus to an onlooking world. So when you're undergoing this suffering, and when you live in this way, we are poised as Christians to honor Christ and to give a defense, to give a, a witness to an onlooking world. And so I think he mentions three things there that, that, that go into this idea of being prepared to make a defense. One is that we, we honor Christ. That's what it means in verse 15. Set apart, honor Christ as Lord, fear Jesus and his kingship more than men and culture. So being prepared to make a defense to Jesus, for Jesus to an onlooking world is to fear God, to love God more than the opinion of men. We all struggle with this, don't we? 
Don't we all struggle with wanting to be liked or for our testimony to kind of be palatable, sort of? Don't we all? Am I the only one? Am I the only weak Christian in this group? All right, I get a couple north-souths. Thank you very much. But we all, I mean, the, the ultimate battle in our hearts is, is whether Jesus is, is really king of our lives. And he's saying, set apart Honor Christ as Lord. Secondly, I think that we should be prepared to make a defense. That we should be prepared to explain why our hope is in Christ and not in temporary comfort. So I think implicit in that is that we need to know truth. We need to know good theology. It means that we as Christians need to go deeper than trite Sayings. We need to go deeper than flowery devotionals. We need to learn hard truths. We need to understand how the Bible fits together. We need to think deeply about these things. It doesn't mean that we all have to be scholars, but it does mean that all Christians, I think, are called to spend time thinking deeply about the truths of Scripture, how they apply to the world, and how they explain this broken world so that they can effectively, in their context, explain it to an onlooking world. Now, let me just say, especially to the men, it's been a while since I've, I've rattled that cage a little bit, but men, we know how to figure things out. We know how to study and don't tell me you're not, oh, I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not a reader. I'm not academic. Oh, come on. You will browse some website of recruiting.com, rivals.nation to determine which eighth grader in Texas might be the next quarterback of your favorite SEC team, right? You know what that takes? That takes studying skills, right? You know how to do that. You know how to pick out the best gear to go along with whatever your hobby is. Like, do you know how many options there are? I, 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 I have this little property in the back, and one of my sons is into killing animals, and I thought I'd maybe get him some gear to, like with a bow, and he's into all this primitive stuff. And so I, I asked around a couple of the hunter-like guys, you know, the hunter-gatherers among us, just, hey, what, what, what type of bow? I mean, there are so many options about guns and bows and all sorts of stuff. I mean, don't tell me you don't know how to study because I started asking questions and guys gave, I mean, I had 50 options and 50 different types of strings and shafts and bu- bu- all this stuff. I mean, come on. It takes a, a little bit of intelligence just to sort through that information. But when you come to the deep truths of the Bible, oh, oh no, man, it's so hard to understand. You just push away. What is that, friends? That is spiritual warfare. Do not push away from the Bible so easily. Peter is saying here that we need to be people who understand how the Bible fits together, who read deeply, and who can explain it to an onlooking world. For me, you know what that means? It means reading books by dead people. (laughs) Meaning people that wrote books when they were alive and now have since died. (laughs) Right? I have nothing against living people or living authors. But there's something about a book that stood the test of time for like five or six hundred years. What has been an absolute 
Medicine for my soul has been the works of the Puritans in the 1500s and 1600s. We have a bunch of them in the resource room, little Puritan paperbacks. Read some of those deep books. Read The Mystery of Providence by John Flavel. And let your heart be anchored in deep truths where this man takes scriptural truth and applies it to life. Know what the gospel is. Know how it applies to life. Know the reason for the hope that is in you. And friends, you will not get that if the only Bible you are exposing yourself is to on Sunday mornings or just an occasional little cherry-picked devotional that you hit when you need a little something to get you through a tough Thursday. That will not suffice. And men, we can hold your hand and you can blame everybody else for the lack of your spiritual growth. But at the end of the day, the end of the day, brother, it is on you to let this verse sit on you like an 800-pound gospel gorilla that says it is on you with the help of brothers around you to set apart Christ as Lord in your heart and develop in yourself and in your mind a defense for the gospel to an onlooking world. Men, you can exhale now. We'll move on. And then he says, and it, by the way, this applies to women too. Um, it applies to all of us. But just had a little something I had to get off my chest. All right, let's keep going. And do this winsomely. Do this with gentleness and respect. Have a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For Listen to verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I think we could make a case that in some sense, clearly, everything that happens to us is part of God's providential plan for his people. I think that's the truth in Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Nothing is sort of floating outside of God's providential care of his people. Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. But what Peter is saying more specifically here is that when we suffer... There are times very specifically where God intends that directly to wean us from this earth, woo us to heaven, so that we are in a unique position to display to an onlooking world that the message of the gospel is not life 2.0 or leadership principles or ways that will help you have a better life now, but the heart of the gospel is making yourself right through Jesus' work on the cross with a holy God and being in right relationship with him forever and commending satisfaction in Christ rather than temporary comfort to an onlooking world that is still chasing after broken idols. And Peter is saying that God very directly at times intends for his children to go through these things so that they will be poised to display the surpassing worth of Christ to the world. How does this challenge our mindsets? It challenges the mindset that the Christian life is about maximizing personal fulfillment and potential. Friends, that's why much of the junk that's published in Christian circles this day is just not helpful to read, why you need to read stuff by dead people. Because 
Much of it is just, it's just personalized stuff about how you can live a more personally fulfilled life. And certainly, Jesus, certainly the gospel wants us to be fulfilled in Christ. But when it takes all of it and sort of makes it dead end on our improvement, friends, we lose the gospel. Christianity is not help. It is rescue. And oftentimes what our culture consumes, even our Christian culture, is this sort of 2.0 version of life rather than the heart of the gospel, which is salvation from sin and judgment and right standing with our Creator. Another way this challenges our mindsets is that I think it challenges, especially in the American church, where we have a sort of sense of entitlement and we're shocked when the world is against us. I think especially in the political environment. We just have this sort of sense of like entitlement, like, oh, like we're just shocked when unregenerate minds and unbelieving leaders act like sinners. Like that's what unregenerate, unbelieving minds do. And, and actually, it sort of reveals our hearts that we're, we're maybe more clinging on to a sort of Norman Rockwell version of America and a sort of traditionalism than we are gospel mission in a broken world. We care more about like, the way things used to be in our perceived imagination than we do being a witness for Jesus in a hostile world. I think that's what it, it reveals that in me, you know? And this is what Jesus says, John 15, verses 18 through 20. These are important words to Americans today, American Christians. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. Amen. Amen. May our mindsets be challenged, and may we see suffering for righteousness' sake as being a good thing from the hand of God to display the surpassing worth of Christ. But what Peter commends now is not just sort of floating out there, do this, boys and girls, and be good Christians. But he anchors his reasoning now in what Jesus has done for us, and that's verse 18. Reynolds read this verse at the beginning. This was the first verse that I memorized as a Christian. It was the fall of 1989, and I was a freshman at the United States Military Academy, and an upper-class cadet whose main job was to haze me and to break me down, which he did, but who was also a Christian, after he almost made me cry and want my mommy. <laughs> then invited me to a church right outside the gates of the academy and took me to this, this little church plant 
<laughs> where I developed a relationship with a pastor who loved me and who preached the word. And in that little church in that fall, one of the first verses that I opened to was this, this verse. And I think this is one of those verses that is just the gospel in bullet form. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Let's just look at that. Jesus suffered once for sins. Hebrews says that he suffered once for all. That means that because Jesus has suffered for our sins and has absorbed God's punishment for our sins, we don't have to keep suffering for our sins. Now, we still may be dealing with the consequences of our sins, but as far as the more important aspect of suffering for our sins, which is the holy righteous wrath of a God who we've offended, Jesus has satisfied that portion. In fact, that's the Bible, that's Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, so a couple implications. This means that my continual posture of guilt and shame before the Lord is unbiblical and needs to be let go. There is now therefore no condemnation. So I don't care what you did. I don't care how many people you slept with or how many drugs you did or how much of a blasphemer you were. If you are in Christ, the truest thing about you is that your sin has been taken away as far as the east is from the west. God has given you the righteousness of Christ. And although you may have to, in the rest of your early li earthly life, deal with consequences from your sins, you are right. You are justified. You are no longer condemned as you stand not just not guilty but righteous before a heavenly father and judge that's friends that's the gospel trusting in Christ isn't merely for improvement in this life but for right standing for eternity with your creator God and our only hope of that going well because we are by nature sinners and objects of wrath is for Jesus who is perfect to lay down his perfect life in substitute in the place of ours. And then Peter says that this is the righteous for the unrighteous. So that's Jesus, the perfect one for the unrighteous. The unrighteous being the drug addict, the adulterer, the pornographer, the promiscuous young adult, and the moral, self-righteous church kid who previously thought he or she could make themselves right by abiding in their ability to live more righteously than others around them. The righteous for the unrighteous. And we are all unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. Jesus actually brings us to God. He secures our salvation. He doesn't just merely make it possible. He secures a people for himself through his work. Friends, that's the gospel. Verse 18 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. 
And then Peter goes into a very interesting rabbit trail. Verses 19 and 20. So let me read 18 again just to give us some context. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Verse 19. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, meaning Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, were the only people saved in the flood, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Okay, what does Peter mean when, Jesus, when he says that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison? Okay, one of the greatest minds in the history of humanity, certainly one of the greatest minds in the history of the church, a little guy we like to call Augustine, said this about this text. He said about this verse, these two verses. He said, a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. <laughs> Thank you, Augie. I really appreciate your honesty because I don't either. And I am going to tread very lightly on an opinion on this text when Augustine, one of the greatest minds in the history of the church, is walking on eggshells in his interpretation as well. Here's three views. Here's three historic views of what it means that Jesus went to proclaim to these spirits in prison. So the question is, who currently Jesus is proclaiming his authority, his good news to somebody, who are these spirits in prison? And friends, this is why it's good to read the Bible slowly and deeply because wrestling with difficult passages like this helps us understand the rest of the Bible. So here are three views. View number one, view, view number one that's possible is, is that Jesus is proclaiming the gospel to people who died in the flood. So you've got all of humanity, Noah and his family, they're rescued in the flood. The rest of the population of the earth perished at that time. So one view, historically, is that Jesus is proclaiming himself to those people, those spirits who are now in prison. So after they have died and they're in like hell, or some sort of purgatory place, which the Bible does not support that at all, but that Jesus went to them and gave them a sort of second chance at salvation. Another view is that Jesus is proclaiming the gospel through the Holy Spirit, through Noah, to the people that he was living with at the time, and that through, like the Trinity, Jesus along with the Holy Spirit and the Father, are, are, are with Noah to be preaching the gospel to an onlooking world about the coming judgment of the flood. And then a third interpretation is that Jesus is proclaiming that these spirits in prison are actually fallen angels. And this is relying on some thoughts about the beginning of Genesis 6, which is the chapter about the flood, but the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, it talks about these sons of God who came down and, 
and had sexual relations and children with beautiful women at the time. And there's a whole bunch of thoughts about that verse. Who are these sons of God? Were they just mighty men who disobeyed God? Or were they like fallen angels who took on human form and actually mated with female women at that time? Female women being redundant. Females are all women. Women are all females. But that Jesus is proclaiming here, and that's a very complicated um, explanation, but just sort of, let's just sort of shorthand it by saying that Jesus is proclaiming himself to these fallen angels. Okay, so three views. Again, Jesus is preaching to people who have already died and gone to hell, and he's giving them sort of a second chance. Or Jesus is preaching through the Holy Spirit, through Noah, to all of the people that are still alive before the flood. Or Jesus is preaching to these fallen cosmic powers, these angels that have, that have fallen. Let's look at these views. One clearly has to be false because the rest of the Bible uh, makes post-death chances at trusting in Jesus impossible. Hebrews 9.27 says that as it, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus offers this story about a rich man and Lazarus and they both die. And Lazarus, the, the, the poor man goes and he is with Christ, he's with God and the rich man is in hell and he is sort of speaking to uh, the, the poor man. He's speaking to God saying, can, can, can you just give me one more chance? Can you send that guy back down to, to kind of tell me now again so that I might, and, and, and Jesus is saying, no, there's a chasm between eternity separated from God and eternity with God that is fixed. And so that means that we must trust in Christ in this life. That view is clearly biblically wrong. So that leaves us now with possibility two or three, that Jesus is proclaiming the Holy Spirit through Noah to people before the flood. I think that's entirely possible. And I think number three is entirely possible. Which of those two is it? I don't know. But I do know this, that I think regardless of if you want to get deep into that, what you think that clearly what's happening here is that Jesus is proclaiming himself I think probably both can be true, that Jesus is proclaiming himself to an onlooking world through his people, to cosmic powers, that he has all authority over even the suffering of the world and Noah's suffering that he went through and the persecution that Noah went through as he obeyed God, that even over that even over the trial. I mean, come on. Don't, don't just think about the ark and Noah and the flood as being like some little cute little thing on a, on a flannel graph. I mean, do you realize how difficult that must have been even for Noah to be saved? I mean, he's preaching the gospel for years to people who hate him. And then it starts raining, and it's not just like the pictures where, you know, you got these lions who are like obeying him, and, every, and everything's cute and sanitary, and he's waving to people. I should have. I told you. I told you. Come on. I mean, that was horrible. The judgment of God hit the world. And do you realize how difficult that was for Noah? And so whatever happen, is happening here, whether Jesus, whether the Holy Spirit is intending for us to think that Jesus to show us that he's proclaiming himself and over cosmic powers, or whether he is attending with Noah, giving him strength to preach the gospel, the point is, is that God was in that moment of suffering, sovereign still even over that. 
And then we get into the next tricky verse, which is verse 21. Much quicker. Baptism then, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So is Peter saying now, after we've had this confusing verse about Jesus preaching to these spirits in prison, is now he's saying that baptism saves us? No. Again, we need to know the rest of the Bible. We know the many verses in the New Testament that say that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. The thief on the cross turns and trusts in Jesus in the last moments of his life before being baptized and is with Jesus that day in paradise. The gospel is not Jesus plus baptism or Jesus plus some spiritual gift or Jesus plus good works. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. The Bible does not contradict itself. It is not saying that we need to be physically water baptized in order to be saved. So what is Peter saying here? I think the context of what Peter is saying is this previous verse about the flood, that this flood represents God's judgment of sin and baptism. Our baptism now symbolizes that, that when we go down into the water, and then we come up out of the water, we're doing more than just doing sort of this sort of traditional thing in church life. That what we are pointing to is God's judgment of sin, which is exactly what the flood displayed. So the floodwaters of judgment of God come and judge sin. And Noah, as he obeys God and trusts in God, goes into the ark, which is, it points us to Christ. That ark is the way of salvation for Noah, which points to trusting in Jesus. And so what Peter is saying, not that the physical act of baptism saves you, but he's tying baptism into this Old Testament picture of the flood, where literally when we go down into the water, it is a picture of God's wrath and judgment on sin that was absorbed in Christ for those that are trusting in Christ, and for those that are not trusting in Christ, it causes them to drown in judgment, and then we rise again through trusting in the resurrection of Jesus, because Jesus died, but he defeated death and came back from life, and now when we trust in Jesus, we, just like Moses trusted in God and floated safely above the floodwaters in the ark, we trust in Jesus and float safely above the floodwaters of God's judgment as we trust in the resurrection and life of Jesus. Do you see that? So that's why we got to think deeply. The, listen, don't be one of these people who just reads this verse and says, oh gosh, that's strange. So let me just let me just move past that. Do you see the beautiful imagery here that Peter is wanting to draw out? That Christians, you will suffer in a hostile world. And that draws his mind back to one of the most horrific moments of suffering in the history of mankind when God judged the sin of the world by bringing floods which brought death and floating dead bodies all around and people screaming, saying, Moses, let me in. Moses, let me in. Disobeying God, scorning Moses. Can you imagine how horrific that must have been for Moses? And Peter, in his mind, when he's thinking about Christians enduring suffering in Christ, is going back to this horrific moment of suffering when God proclaimed his authority to the world, to spirits in prison, whatever they are, through the authority of his son Jesus, through the trust of 
of this man, Moses, trusting in Jesus. And now he's saying, Christians, when you, in the context of a hostile Roman Empire, have the boldness to proclaim your faith in Jesus by being baptized, you're doing more than just having an individual cool little moment where you get a certificate and a picture. You are proclaiming that Jesus has judged sin, he's defeated death, and he has risen, he's brought you back from the grave, and you are now trusting the floodwaters of God's judgment will judge everything that is contrary to his authority, and he will bring you safely home. And that's verse 22, and we end with this, about Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So three sentences, we're done. Don't get nervous. I'm gonna put three points up on the screen just to summarize this. One, suffering is an opportunity to display Jesus. And I say that as somebody who's never really, really suffered like many people in this room. But friends, this is what Peter's intending to say. Are you suffering right now? And I don't just mean necessarily social persecution like the recipients of this letter were undergoing. How are you viewing that? When you read verses like this, does it cause you to coil back? Oh, brother or sister, give yourself to a good and faithful God who intends even what you're going through to be a sweet anchor of your soul. Know that in a unique way, even as we pray for this suffering to pass, that you were poised, maybe like no other time in your life, to display the surpassing worth of Jesus to an onlooking world. Jesus is better than perfect health. Jesus is better than promotion. Jesus is better than marrying the person who doesn't want to marry you. Jesus is better than social acceptance. Suffering is an opportunity to display Jesus. Two, because Jesus suffered for our sins and secured our eternity, we can endure suffering in the present. That's Peter's logic. Verses 8 through 17 aren't just, hey, suck it up, take it on the chin, because, you know, you want to be a good example. He doesn't just say, be a good example for good example's sake. He says, when it comes your way, you can suffer in this way, because Jesus ultimately has suffered, because the, the greatest trial that you will ever face is a holy and righteous God who cannot endure and stand our sin and so Jesus has gone before us, and when we trust in him, we now are in right standing. Our greatest trial is now solved because of what Jesus has done for us, and so he anchors all of our suffering in the cross. And thirdly and finally, Jesus has all authority over whatever may cause us temporary suffering. Jesus has all authority over whatever may cause us temporary suffering. Did you see verse 22? Let me read it again. Jesus, our big brother, 
has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him. Think about that now. In your mind, place it. What's the most difficult thing? What's the most stressful thing? What's the thing that's keeping you up at night? It's subject to Jesus. If you are in Christ, it is subject to Jesus. If you are not in Christ, you have something much more dreadful than a worldly circumstance to fear. You have the holiness of a righteous God to fear. And your only hope of surviving the flood of his judgment is to trust in Christ. Friends, do that even now. Do like William Arnault, the bearded British man in the 1800s, commends us to do. To be a Christian is to say, God, I am trusting in what Jesus has done for my sin, what he did with it on the cross. I trust in you and I take your side against my sin. That's what it means to be a Christian. You must do that now if you have not. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to respond to your word, this is a complex passage. But Lord, I thank you that you give us these things. In fact, when we find ourselves reading difficult passages, it is, it's a commentary on us and our sin and our frailty, not a commentary on your ability to communicate. But in your kindness, you even take our frailty and our, our hard-headedness and how difficult it is for us to understand things at times, and you use that to make us go deeper into your text, to move beyond trite sayings and flowery little thoughts that don't really anchor our hearts deep in the gospel. So Lord, even as we've peeled back this, at times, difficult to understand passage, would you help us see that we will suffer and that Jesus has gone before us and that he has all authority over suffering and that Jesus is better. He's better than temporary comfort. Even as we pray, God, for trials to pass, I pray that we wouldn't waste our trials and that you would give us a sort of God-saturated, eternity-anchored, satisfied in Jesus' posture so that an onlooking world that is consumed with the pursuit of temporary comfort and false idols might see your people enduring in this way and it might become so beautiful and irresistible and lovely that they are drawn to the words of life of Jesus who says trust in me and not in the world Lord, would you use even our suffering would you strengthen my friends in this room who are going through it even now for the display of your worth for the joy of your people in Jesus name Amen